come to me I hear a sound busy like traffic headed out of this town Hello and welcome to Office Hours on KUCI the show where I interview professors and graduate students from across the various fields at UC Irvine. I'm Sibelle Kaler, and today I'll be speaking with Dr. Damien Sojourner, an anthropology professor and the author of the book, First Strike, Educational Enclosures of Black Los Angeles. I'll also be speaking with Stephanie Jones, a PhD student in sociology. We will be discussing their studies on conceptions of race and systemic racism in America. To start off, I was wondering, could you explain for the listeners the term systemic racism? Well, I want to say first that, um, like, probably the way that I am trained to use it as a sociologist is this very specific term, right? It's a very, it's it's a term that's like describing um, systems themselves and sort of like how systems function within greater society, right? Um, and I think that the way uh, people tend to use it, so like activists and and um, folks who like are trying to describe this like much sort of broader phenomena of like racism that exists outside of like one individual. Um, it, I mean, I think that both terms sort of make sense, right? And the way that people are sort of like deploying them, but in terms of the way that sort of I'm trained to use that term, it's a very like we're talking about sort of like systems and institutions and how they work together, right? And how perhaps maybe even the foundation of those institutions or the sort of kind of, of, of um, premise that those institutions exist on um, has a racial meaning or a racial bias that um, perpetuates this sort of like difference making between groups of people, right? Um, and so the question becomes like, how does race as a term continue to exist, right? How, how does how is race um, sort of made real? And, and when we look at some institutions, those institutions themselves are part of that like difference-making process, right? And those institutions act on um, confirming difference and like, you know, relying on sort of like setting different groups of people apart. Um, Again, it's just it's different. I think than sort of how some people sometimes talk about it, which is just like it's something that exists outside of the individual, like psychology. Right. You mentioned what race means as a term, and a lot of people say things like race is a social construct. What does that mean exactly? Race as a social construct. Uh, that is very much true, and it stands in contradistinction to race as a biological construct. Uh, which for most of the 19th century and early 20th century was sort of a, a given fact based upon a pseudoscientific or you can say rational scientific um, at that time perspective of how race operated. This is based upon size of um, cranium skulls that were done with sort of funky experiments, putting pepper chips and things of that nature, bullet, pe bullet pellets uh, into craniums and, and all these sort of arbitrary measures of who was smarter based on certain things and biological norms, so on and so forth. Um, so that, that comes to an end, um, quote unquote, an end. 
uh, within the academic community and, and scholarly community around the uh, 1920s and 30s. You have this progressive era that uh, kicks in and starts to look at race um, less as being um, biological and more social, in particular looking at cultural norms instead of biological norms. Uh, now, the problem is, however, that even though people sort of are in agreement that race doesn't have these quote-unquote biological tropes, there still are a lot of the, um, carryovers from uh, the ways in which race was measured biologically into cultural norms. Um, and there's a scholar by name of uh, Dorothy Roberts, who has an excellent book, uh, she's at UPenn that talks about this, in which she uh, discusses the, the ways in which race is constantly reified over and over again uh, in medicine uh, and in science as well, through things that we are sort of commonly take to be um, practices so, so that black, you know, black people supposedly have high rates of X, Y, or Z, when in fact you can look at it from a different perspective, people with brown eyes have high rates of X, Y, or Z. It just depends on how, as Stephanie was saying, you want to make that difference uh, look real. Um, so yeah, so there, there was sort of a long-winded uh, answer to your very easy question. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a pretty, uh, pretty complex question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, on the surface, it seems easy, <laughs> but of course. <laughs> We deal with race, there are no easy questions. <laughs> exactly. These cultural norms, as you mentioned, what are some of the ways that they impact Black Americans through the education system, the employment, healthcare, prison systems? How do these all kind of intersect? So I guess if, if we pick up from the previous question, um, it is the ways in which race is determined by aspects of culture. And so would you... Uh, see that takes place in 19, in particular 1940s and 50s, which really starts in the progressive era, but really gets solidified through policy in 1940s and 50s, are the ways in which Black culture is made to look less than any other culture um, formation. And so this is done by saying like the Black family is not stable, um, and, and that's because the Black women uh, run the household and Black men need to be put towards uh, the four, it's called, the black family is called dysfunctional, based upon a set of cultural norms that honestly no one is abiding by uh, at all um, dur during that time, just because of the state of the, of the economy. It's sort of like this, this mythical norm, but the way that that myth works is to establish blackness at the bottom um, in terms of being uh, a culture. Now, that, that's going to have pretty dire um, effects upon the black community because policy gets made uh, around this. And so the way that the, the policy is invoked is all to target the black family as being dysfunctional. Um, and that, that has, is going to have and continues to have uh, a wide range um, and aspect in terms of how black people sort of are able to make it in this country versus the demands that black people are putting forward. So as black people are demanding uh, to have uh, autonomous formations of land, uh, education, right, and um, uh, healthcare, the response by the state, the federal government and state governments and 
local governments is to put in and implement these policies which are based upon these cultural normative understandings of race which uh, more or less uh, try to dampen those calls for autonomy of, of different sorts and what you see um, in places uh, issues of like welfare reform um, stricter mandates on who gets charged with crimes all, all of this stuff under the guise that black families are dysfunctional um, and so it actually uh, is ironically trying to take the steam away from liberation efforts as, as opposed to actually trying to help uh, which is sort of set up the, as framed um, to do Right. And do you think that we've made significant progress in the last 60 years? Or do you think a lot of these underlying things are still just as present as they were? I think progress is the wrong word. Um, I, I understand what people mean when they say it. You know, they're like, have we gotten better at, you know, the way we treat black people? And I, and I get that. I get the emphasis of, of asking that question. I think a better question, though, is, you know, where are the sort of like points of of dependency that we have on these concepts, right? So, like, why do we need to hang on to like welfare as being a bad thing for individuals, right? Why do we need to hang on to um, different types of education systems? Like, why do we need to hang on to those things? Um, why do we need to hang on to particular types of taxation as being bad and other types of taxations as being good, right? Um, and when, I think when we ask that question, it, it's a better question because asking the question of like, do we still treat black people, black people crappy is again, just continuing to reify that difference, right? Um, and, and it sort of positions us to be back in the same conversation where where I think when people ask that question, they're like, how do we get away from doing the same old thing? Like, that's not, that's not easy because then you're asking not just, I mean, it goes back to this sort of like systemic racism question, right? Where like, what are these systems? What are these institutions? You know, what are these, what are these um, relationships that are like formalized through the state that we need to start attacking, that we need to tear down. And that's a much more difficult question than like, are black people mad at me today, right? <laughs> Which is the question that I think a lot of people ask a lot. <laughs> right, there's a lot of big changes that we need just in the structure of our country. I think also to, to add to what Stephanie was saying um, in response to the question is that the, the narrative arc of that um, sort of question, and, and this, this is a common question, particularly in this moment, is that somehow in the 1950s and 60s, things were just horrific in the United mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. And the civil rights movement addressed those issues. Mm -hmm. And now things are marginally better. Um, and that's just a common sort of theme. Um, if you go back and look at the documentation from the 1950s and 60s, it's the same type of argument that's being made, um, which is that things were so bad during slavery, right? And now things are so much better. Mm -hmm. So let's just keep pushing in terms of progress. And the reality of the situation is much more complex and much more nuanced, but importantly, as Steph um, has um, brought out, that uh, 
you really have to focus in on what's happening and what's occurring um, because the, the nature of racism is it's uh, and race in particular is constantly changing. Nothing is it's static um, at all. And so I think you know it's very important to keep that in mind. Right. And I've heard scholars use the term racial capitalism. Do you think you could talk a little bit about what this means? Racial capitalism, as, um, as I understand it, so it's influenced, heavily influenced by the work of Cedric Robinson. And, and um, how uh, Cedric Robinson uses that term is he dates back the advent of capitalism and the, the, the common understanding of capitalism is that capitalism predates uh, race. However, um, what he finds is that, in fact, uh, racialism, as he calls it, predates the development of capitalism. And racialism starts in what we consider now to be modern day Europe, um, but was not called Europe in the countries were not named the countries that they are right now. Um, and his argument, which I firmly uh, am in, in agreement with, <clears throat> is that Capitalism develops through the logics of race, which is that these difference-making entities which existed um, prior to the development of capitalism were used to um, export and expand on the exploitative dimensions of race. Uh, so that how we understand capitalism to function is in large part thanks to the logics of race, which are based upon difference makings, uh, myths and tropes uh, that were already in existence prior to the uh, um, development of what we now know as capitalism. Right. And in your book, uh, First Strike, you talk about the increased police presence in, in schools. How do these policies impact Black students? So that is like an hour long conversation that I'm gonna try to <laughs> boil down. <itself. laughs> so um, you have different layers of policing that take place at school. Um, you have the formal policing, which really ramps up in the 1960s. And when I say formal, it's this um, collusion between police departments and school districts and cities to place police officers uh, into the classroom, either by under the, guy, under the guise of safety or under the guise of trying to teach students the normative ways of civil protest. Um, now, that's not to say that the police were not all already in place. So, for example, in the city of Los Angeles, the um, Los Angeles Unified School District, which at its formation was not called that, um, but if, if we can just go by that term for right now, already had a police force in place even prior to this collusion uh, taking place. Um, and that just intensifies from 1960s all the way to the current moment um, to right now where you have in many school districts, uh, a sheriff's office will be on campus uh, in addition to school policing in addition to security guards so on and so forth now i say the formal aspect of policing because really you know the the aspect of policing starts much earlier than that which is that it starts in the classroom and this is why i said that this question really we can talk about this for an hour because you have to go back to the formations of schools in, in the united states 
Um, and the modern school sort of platform that we have right now is based upon the boarding school model um, and under which uh, teachers were um, sort of instructed um, to kill the Indian save the man uh, type of trope, right? And so the, the first formations of education then uh, get worked out in this sort of very weird juncture between um, Native American education and Black education in the 1800s. And teachers very much had a duty and a bounded duty uh, to teach a civilizing effort. Now, I'm not going to go through all the various changes and formations, but that role over over the time, similar to race, while it has changed in formation, its uh, overall ethos is the same, which is that schools are there to teach students about the civilizing process of what it means to be a good civic participant in the nation state. And so all of that to say is that the same logics of race that govern how um, we interact with each other as a nation, so on and so forth, are present in school. And so those same logics then are going to be carried out by teachers as well. And so the moment that that happens is that when uh, Black subjectivity does what it's going to do, which is to resist any sort of um, normative understanding that's different than what the cultural norms of Blackness are, then teachers have to respond by policing that. And that happens in the shape of either reprimanding Blackness, and that could happen in various amount of forms, or literally sending Black kids to the sheriff's station, right, on, on campus um, themselves, right? So there's many aspects to policing that go on, which is why, if I just to refer back to your question earlier about um, uh, how is it that things have changed and not changed over 60 years. This was not the original call for black people when they were demanding to have access uh, to education. And, and I use that, that access term actually is a bad term because it means different things to different people. But black people were demanding to have autonomy over schools. They wanted full control over schools. And what took place and sort of sold as a, a, a bag of goods instead is black people, black people having the same opportunities, quote unquote, as white students in order to succeed, which is a completely different way of looking at the, the, the issue. What, what are some ways that the curriculum does this, as you said, paints black culture in a inferior light? can't speak to all schools across the whole country because uh, each state sets up their own rubric for how education is taught. So when I'm talking, it's mostly about in the state of California um, for, for that to, to, to be clear. Um, but I think if you go through and look at different textbooks and issues of, of that sort throughout the United States, I think you're going to find some of this uh, conversation is um, the same more or less, which is that uh, the history of black people taught in the textbooks, for example, pretty much like starts with slavery uh, and that black people are dependent upon the state or, or wealthy white people to do the quote unquote right thing in order to get their freedom, right? This sort of is how the history is told. And then you get a little sprinkling of like black exceptionality in there um, by some poets or some scientists who did something so amazing that they leapt out of the pages that were bounded by blackness and made them so famous, right? 
um, this is in addition to the fact that um, the ways in which uh, blackness is taught is under the guise that somehow, some way, um, there is this thing called an achievement gap, which black people have to rise up out of, um, or they need the help of the state to close this quote unquote gap. Uh, when in fact, all of the sort of research that links together housing, employment, um, all of these structural forces that Stephanie was discussing earlier, in fact, it is not a gap in terms of like achievement or who needs to get better or what, right? It's how race operates and how race is structured. Um, and that's a much different type and longer, once again, that's like an hour long uh, discussion on, on, on how that works. That I think the, the key takeaway to your uh, question is that many of the ways in which, uh, if, if you go to any black school, and, and when I say a black school is uh, a school where primarily black um, students are taught, you would see that the ways in which the students are taught is much different than how, let's say, their counterparts are taught in other schools. The restrictions that are placed upon them, how they're allowed to be quote unquote free with their bodies and with their mind, talking back to the teacher, things of that nature is very much restricted. The same uh, ways in which white students are allowed to express themselves, black students can even imagine when they're on the campus without getting some sort of disciplinary action taken uh, uh, upon them. Um, so all these things put together uh, sort of create the structure by which um, blackness is taught and, and how uh, black students are taught both in terms of the formal history, social science, literature, math, science aspect of it, but then also the ways of which how it is to be a citizen is taught, which is a big part um, of the, the, the schooling process as well. I will go back to the original cause, which is to have black neighborhoods and communities to be able to dictate what is actually going to be taught in the schools um, and then have um, teachers of their sort of um, selection uh, to be teaching the material as well. Um, that is not like a far cry from what, for example, um, private schools do, which is that when you, you know, pay for money, you have like an input, quote unquote, into what is done in the school. I mean, folks are paying for public education, right? It's, it's being paid for uh, through a combination of forms of taxation and, and private funds as well. Um, so I think that is, you know, very important to the conversation. Uh, but I think overall, it's just what we now um, have come to understand as being school is was never the intent of what school was supposed to be in the first place. So when you go back and look at the original calls of public education at Reconstruction, it did not, the, the imagination of Black people who made those calls was not to have it look what it looks like uh, right now. And there, if, if I can just take one step back, there was this clever connection that was made to link free labor and work to schools. And so now we, we I mean, it's so 
intimate right now that we think about you go to school to get a good job like that's pretty much ingrained and part of that good get a good job is the simple making process and that was never ever the intent you gotta think about it right black people had just been more or less working in this country unpaid for as x amount of years right why would they want to connect education to labor right that's like the last thing that that you want to do right so that whole discussion would have to change it and you think about how that is like every form of discipline is connected to somehow work and labor whether it be sciences or the humanities it's all connected to how can we put this to be consumed in some sort or how can i you know figure out how to make a living off of this um and that whole ideological premise has to be reworked and changed I think it's it's the purpose, and, and it's again going back to your original question, right? Let's talk about systemic racism. Going back to the premise of what this institution is supposed to be doing, right? And um, as Dr. Sojourner was was sort of like recapping, there's this understanding that the connection between education is so that you can eventually become a good laborer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so everything about schools is set up to teach you how to be a good laborer. So for example, um, the way in which classrooms are shaped, right? Um, it's designed to teach you how to listen to authority, right? right. The way in which um, classes are run on a schedule, right? Are designed to teach you how to be somewhere on a schedule every day, right? And so there's all of these things um, that we can talk about that are in schools. I mean, outside of the curriculum, right? Because obviously there's a lot to be addressed when we're talking about like type of curriculum changes, but in terms of like the way schools actually function, right? The ways in which um, teachers are designed to have relationships with students is one of an authoritative figure training a possible worker, training a possible good citizen, right? And so everything that exists outside of that has to be stomped out, right? Has to be policed. Um, Good citizens aren't people who challenge authority. Good citizens aren't people who, right, like, want to have, like, things to address in terms of, like, the structure of some institution. Um, And neither of those things are allowed in our current education system. So the trouble, and I think that this is sort of what First Strike does so well, is it positions us to try and, like, reimagine what that means and what that looks like, right? Reimagine... um, the understanding of schools and how that, how that, even the premise of that institution is designed to train people to be good citizens. Right. Moving to what we're currently seeing, what do you think are some of the problems in the way that the media and the police have been responding to these protests? I think that's also an hour long conversation. <laughs> You have great questions. <laughs> so there's a lot of issues, and I think I want to separate the media and the policing institutions because, like, they are separate in, in a lot of ways. Um, I'll start with the media. I think, well, first, I want to say, I think what you mean by media is, like, these, like, national news corporate media outlets. Going off of that kind of media is a you get a very different story than following like Twitter and Facebook and, and th- that kind of like social media, right? Instagram, etc. Obviously, it's going to be one sided, right? I mean, you have an outsider 
agency coming into a protest that is is trying to just observe things in a particular like lens, right? Um, and so what they choose to capture, what they choose to broadcast, what they choose to sort of like the moments that they that they decide are big moments are going to be coming from this very like top down institutional like ideology around what what protests are and what they mean, right? Um, which is why I think looking at uh, other types of media give you a much fuller story, which I mean, is just sort of, I mean, even saying that out loud, it's like, obviously that's the case, right? Um, but I don't think that anything that these big corporate media heads are doing is anything exceptional, right? Uh, you can go back to any, like, any big protest and you look at the story that the media is telling. Um, we idolize Vietnam War protests now, but the media certainly didn't idolize them at the time, right? Um, we idolize civil rights movement now, but the media certainly didn't idolize them at the time, right? Um, and so the idea of, you know, these corporations is a lot of times just to have this big romanticized story, right? Where, where there's a villain and there's a victim and there's someone who's like trying to save the day and it becomes this big sort of like production of how do you tell a story about you know a protest that you aren't like intimately connected with um so it's nothing unique and i think that if you watch it with that lens and you have that understanding it can be easy to sort of like tear away from looking for like what's the truth and what's the facts right because i mean if I drove to St. Louis tomorrow and started like pointing a camera at people, I mean, <laughs> right? I mean, I get whatever I decided was cute and sexy, but like that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what people in St. Louis want to show, right? So, I mean, I think when people start trying to decide which like media, which way the media is trying to tell a story, um, I think once you look at it in a way that it, 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 you can you can see that these are outsiders. You can see that these are folks who are just trying to capture what they can, obviously, but who don't have an actual connection to what's what's going on. Um, I was involved in the Occupy Oakland protest, um, and a lot a lot of what the news outlets were saying about Occupy Oakland, you would just look around and be like, "Where is that happening? <laughs> like, like, we don't see that." <laughs> I went there. Were you there? <laughs> But that's okay, right? Because that's not the media's job, right? It's not the media's job to, to completely capture an entire protest. And I, and I think a lot of protest folks would say that they don't even want that, right? I mean, it's better to not have the media there. And you mentioned this connection to how, like, in retrospect, we idolize the Vietnam War protests. And lately you hear a lot of people comparing these protests to Martin Luther King Jr. and... Black Panther Party and they're saying this isn't like how MLK did it or like it, it is and what do you think this rhetoric is sort of accomplishing or like what are some of the problems around it so again it, it's about creating this like romanticized story right like who's the villain who's the victim who's trying to save the day what are we actually trying to change um, people feel real challenged when there's not like one person they can attach to right when there's not like a spokesperson out there like repping for the entire movement 
Um, and I think that that is something we just have a hard time talking about, right? Um, we like to talk about, um, especially when we look at like the history of events, we like to talk about them very cleanly. We're like, it started on this day, it ended on this day, this is when it really got kicking. And then once it like died off, it was gone, <laughs> right? Um, when if you, you know, you want to tie these movements to the history of people protesting policing, I mean, when does that end? When does, like, this is a, this is a, a type of protest that doesn't have a beginning and ending, right? I mean, people have been protesting policing since policing. Right. <laughs> and, and that's okay, right? But I think it's harder for us to tell that story. It's harder for us to say, like, I mean, when people talk about the civil rights movement, it's like, it started in the 50s, it ended in the 70s, and that's it, right? Um, so we miss all of the history that's happening in the 20s and 30s and 40s, right? We miss the continuum of what's going on in the 80s and 90s, and we just miss all of that. But again, that's just part of the way in which we like to tell stories. Um, and when people are comparing these protests, I think a lot of it is, you know, how... So there's two sides. On the one side, it's like, how might these protests challenge systems better, right? Um, if you know, you follow in the footsteps of Gandhi and Martin Luther King, does that mean you win, right? Um, and the other side is like, how might the strategy be compared, right? How do we, how do we strategically um, try and win this thing? But, but again, it, it, it's, it's just sort of this false narrative of, you know, what, what is the victory here? How do we talk about victory when we're talking about like taking down an institution right um how do we how do we describe what will we what we how we even know we got a victory right um there are folks there are some cities who are like okay we're gonna defund the police we're gonna uh reform the police we're gonna you know change the police chief out we're gonna do all these things and so like do we talk about those as victory do we talk about those as like just being a part of the movement these are all of the questions that get lost if we're just like, well, look back in the day when they did this, you know? <laughs> yeah. And what are your thoughts on how we might be able to make the police system better or replace it with something better? I think the question is, can we do that? And why? <laughs> right? Like, why? <laughs> I, I always want to know what the goal is of, like, reforming, replacing, I mean, it just comes out of this desire to continue to have a wing of the state that's, you know, trying to keep its citizens in line, right? Um, a wing of the state that's trying to, you know, be that arm, be that strong arm, be the hammer, right? Um, that's like out there in the streets with the people. Um, are there many different ways that we can talk about, like, you know, keeping a community safe or whatever that means. <laughs> Are there many different peoples and agencies that can step in instead of police? I mean, yes, obviously, you know. Um, in Berkeley, California, there are mental health workers that will respond to people who have a mental health crisis, right? So, like, we can look at programs like that. What are some ways that us as individuals can act against and try to educate ourselves against racism in america study study a lot uh dr sojourner the first time i met 
met him, he was like, you just need to read more. And I was first insulted. Um, but then, <laughs> <laughs> then I realized that he was so right. <laughs> He's been right about a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yes, I mean, just study and read. And I mean, there's so, I think when I start introducing text to my students, um, and to, you know, friends and people who ask me, it's actually really overwhelming how much information has been written about these things, right? I mean, uh, you go back to, you know, starting with even, you know, the beginning of the 1900s and you can pick up, you know, hundreds of texts just explaining this, talking about this. Um, and there's so much to be said about going and doing that reading yourself and going and really trying to understand the ways in which these arguments have changed, the way in which they develop, what people have added, um, you know, how these conversations got started. Um, and, you know, once you start to do that, it, it doesn't, it becomes a lot easier to challenge ideas that are sort of off the track, right? It just becomes a lot easier to understand when people who haven't done the reading are having a conversation about something they shouldn't be talking about. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's literally the easiest thing that you can do is just read and read a lot. Yeah. And are there any things that we can do to support the Black Lives Matter movement and just any actions we can take in general to support the cause? I would follow up uh, upon what Stephanie said. And political education at this particular moment in time mm -hmm. uh, is extremely important. And I think that in of itself is actually more important than action. Um, I think many people, their heart is in the right place and that they want to help. But without understanding the nuances of what's happening and actually studying up on the sort of long history that Stephanie has laid out, you can reproduce those same sort of structural forms of racism by thinking that actually you're quote unquote helping out. Um, and I think it's important to talk to people who have been involved in these issues um, as they will be able to provide you information as to the uh, best places to direct uh, your help and that where the help is financial help or where that help is actually you yourself giving up your time and energy. Um, as well. Absolutely. What actions would you want to see our presidential administration take that would be a good first step in a attempt to try to improve the situation right now? So, okay, so if, I'm gonna take the conversation in a completely different direction, mm -hmm. which is that we have to, and I mean have to, have to, um, get a much better response action plan implementation of that plan together with regarding to COVID-19. Mm -hmm. That to me is one of the most important aspects of what's happening right now. Um, from a lack of PPE gear in the very beginning to just an overall lack of healthcare um, for people. The amount of people who are getting sick is severely undercounted um, right now. Doctors are way sort of behind the curve, not because of a lack of desire, but because of a lack of information, a lack of resources. And a lot of that can 
is controlled at the federal level that can release funds. We need to be able to protect uh, people, their safety, um, not just in terms of the PPE gear, but what it really means to be safe, which means you have access to housing, I mean, you have health care. So we need like basic income um, sort of that are just put in place. Everybody should be given um, a certain amount of money over a certain amount of time. Let's say $5,000 a month uh, just to cover expenses. One of the reasons why people are literally dying to get back to work is because without work, then they can't pay their bills. You got to suspend mortgage payments, suspend rent payments. All these, this is not like radical at all, by the way. Um, yeah. This is being done in other places, uh, but we have to have action. And that can be done all at the federal level. Federal mandates can come down and put that in place. Absolutely. Um, well, is there anything else that you'd like to say to the listeners as we wrap up? Yeah, I think, you know, I am encouraged by the, the movements that are happening right now. Um, and I think that this sort of goes to your previous question of like, what can we do, you know? Um, and, and as Dr. Jordan pointed out, like how getting a political education right now is incredibly important. Um, people underestimate the importance of civics. You know, we all had to take that one class of American government, you know, back in high school. And we just forgot the fact that that information was important. Um, but you know, if you don't, I, I tell my students all the time, you know, if you don't know who runs your county, if you don't know who's, you know, the mayor of your city, you know, if you don't know who's in your governor, governor's cabinet, like these are all important things that we need to know. And especially as we start to question you know, the the reliance on the federal government, it's going to become incredibly important if we're ever going to have this concept of democracy and it's ever going to exist. It's going to, it's going to be, it's going to need people to understand like and have a really good grasp of political education. I completely agree. Well, thank you both so much for meeting with me. It's been really, really great to hear all these things. I would say the one source, if um, people want to go to, is the Southern California Library, yeah. uh, which is located in Los Angeles, California. They have they're just a great resource for information, getting information regarding public education. Um, and if you want to donate there as well, uh, you can donate online. You don't have to go down, drive to LA. You can do it online uh, as well. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for being here today. I really appreciate it and. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Again, that was Dr. Damien Sojourner and Stephanie Jones, and this has been Office Hours on KUCI. I'm Sibel Kaler, and I hope that we can all take their advice and educate ourselves on issues of race and the misconceptions we've been taught. To hear past episodes of Office Hours, you can find us at bit.ly slash office hours KUCI. If you're listening to this, I hope you have a great day. Stay safe and be kind to each other out there.